You're listening to episode 393 of the GNU World Order. My name's Klaatu. In this episode, we're going to take listener feedback, and that's all we're doing is a bunch of listener feedback, because I've gotten a lot of messages from you over the past couple of weeks. I I got a little bit ahead of myself and had a bunch of episodes in sort of queued up, you know, recorded, ready to go, and, and, and when I do that, it's nice because I can focus on other things in life, you know, I can kind of go heads down on other projects. Which, which I've been doing, but the, the downside of it is that I get messages from people that I can then, that, that I then don't really respond to all that well. And there's always a push and pull with me because I think, well, I should email this person back, but then I'm going to end up saying the exact same thing to that person in a show. And so that feels a little bit weird to double up on, on, on those, on those things. And, and it's always better, I think, in my opinion, it's better to respond publicly, because then we can all kind of have a, a conversation. I mean, it's a vicarious conversation for some of you, because you know, you're know you not in the email thread or whatever, but I, I do feel like it, it's kind of, it's in a meta kind of way, it feels like you're part of the conversation as well. At least that's how it comes across to me when I'm a podcast listener rather than the podcast talker, uh, and, and I hear people sort of corresponding, or I hear correspondence I think that, you know, it, it kind of makes me think about things. So I like to do that publicly on the show rather than just secretly emailing between listeners. Uh, and so here we go. Here's the, the part where the public thing happens. So the first one I, I think, and I'm probably not right about that, but I, I'm, I'm going to say that the first one that I can that I can kind of find historically that I've glossed over is from Jim. And Jim says, You mentioned in your last episode of GNU World Order you found it difficult to transfer files between your PC and your phone. I had this difficulty too until recently learned of SnapDrop. That's snapdrop.net. It's a website that easily allows you to transfer files between your phone and computer using WebRTC. So this is Klaatu now. Um, you know, when you first read that sentence, and that's kind of why I was chuckling. I don't know if you could tell it I chuckled, but I chuckled as I was reading that because just reading it out loud, I realized how completely suspicious this sounds. I found a great website that specializes in sending your things between your devices. And you think, oh, well, isn't that nice? I can't wait to go give my information to this website. But WebRTC, and I don't know how much you know about WebRTC, dear listener, but WebRTC is a very cool technology that, that probably there's an argument that it shouldn't be um, a thing in a web browser or something. I don't know. I, I haven't actually heard that much against WebRTC. I've certainly found some really cool things being enabled by WebRTC. WebRTC, according to WebRTC.org, is a real-time communication protocol for the web, or, or technology for, for the web. So with WebRTC, it says, you can add real-time communication capabilities to your applications that work on top of an open standard. It supports video, voice, and generic data to be sent between peers allowing developers to build powerful voice and video communication solutions. So, in other words, WebRTC is a way to, uh, let's say, open up a portal from one device to another, enabled by a common connection through a web browser, but, but it's, a, it's a direct portal, so there's no need for an intermediary web server. One of the coolest things that I've found using this technology recently was p2p.chat. That's P as in peer and then the number two as in the number two, and then P as in peer, 
and then .chat. If you go to p2p.chat, you'll find a website that specializes in video conferencing over WebRTC. So you create a, a chat room through this website, and then you send that link to someone else. They go to that link, and now they've joined your open portal, and you can talk to each other. There's You're not sending anything through some other server you all you've used a server for was to create this this point in time and space at which you're going to communicate device to device the same thing holds true for snapdrop.net you open a browser window on one device i'm opening another device right now as i speak so you you go to the web browser in on your computer let's say you go to snapdrop.net and it gives you an identity and then you go to the same website snapdrop.net on some other device and now you can transfer files between those two devices any device on your local network connected to snapdrop.net will discover another device connected to snapdrop.net on your local network so it, it it's working locally so you won't be opening snapdrop.net and accidentally stumbling onto someone else's file share session and it's really cool once you're there you can uh, tap the screen or click the screen to send a file or um, I, on the phone it was a long press to send a message I think and it happens super fast I mean it's a really quick little process really really nice very very cool so uh, Jim continues, he says, simply open snapdrop.net in your computer's web browser, then do the same on your phone's web browser. Of course, again, you have to be, this is Klaatu again, sorry, interrupting a lot, I do that. Um, you have to be on the same local network. So if your phone is on your mobile network and your computer is on your local Wi-Fi or hardwired into the wall and, and, and they're not actually on the same network, then that this will not work. But um, it's assuming that you're you're transferring between devices and so you are on the same network and you just want to really quick like send a file over to another device so um, you do that you you click on the on the device and each device tells you what it is how it's being identified by snapdrop by some clever name you know something like a brown brown badger and um, I don't know something else and so then you'll you'll click on on the device if there are multiple devices you can click on that device and then send the file it gets offered on the other device and you can accept it, save it to your hard drive, or ignore it, or whatever. So it says, since the, this is Jim again, since the transfer is done via WebRTC, the file never hits Snapdrop's server, it's only used to establish the WebRTC connection between devices. The source code is on GitHub, allowing you to self-host on one of your own computers if you want. So you don't even have to, you don't even have to use Snapdrop.net. That's just the, the the proof of concept slash convenience server. You could run this thing on your local network and have your own sort of local HTTP-based, well, HTTPS slash WebRTC-based file share. Really, really slick. I'm really happy to have known about this. I'll definitely be running that on my home server, running a local instance, no question about that. That's just a really neat service. Okay, next up is Mathe, and I have a feeling I'm not saying that right, because he is German, I think. So it's probably not a soft TH, and I think I've done this before. I think I've butchered his name before. Mate? Mat? Mate? Mat, 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 Matthias. Matthias. No, Matthias. Um, 
Okay, anyway, Matthias says, uh, Dear Klaatu, shared sessions are supported by screen. Consider the option dash X with a lowercase x. And he's right, Matthias. It's got to be Matthias. Uh, Matthias is correct. So if I start a session of screen and do an echo, hello, and then I start a new terminal window here and do screen dash X lowercase, there I see uh, the words hello. And if I do hello or echo world in this um, screen, then it's, it is it is mimicked in the other screen. So completely correct. Screen dash X does exactly what Tmux dash whatever it was does. So mea culpa. He says also, a guy more experienced than me said once, screen can do serial connections while Tmux cannot. So one can do, uh, and actually Matthias sent me a different email. Okay, here it goes. So screen slash dev slash TTY USB 09600. You can connect to a screen session over serial, a serial port or a serial connection. And that's really, really nice. I mean, I'll admit it's not something that I personally need or anticipate needing anytime soon, but my point about using Tmux instead of screen was the the option is there. You know, just getting used to an application, maybe not using all of the options, but knowing that the option is there so that in a pinch, if you do need the option, you already know the application that you need to know in order to take advantage of that option. So this is huge. Screen-X, I, I don't know if it's a new feature or if it's just something that nobody ever told me about. And I know that screen used to get a lot of a lot of flack for not being not not having i think a vertical split i think was 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 a thing i think people used to complain about that and i remember by the time that i started using screen or or, or maybe i compiled it myself i don't know there was some feature waiting in you know a source repository somewhere a source code repository somewhere that gave screen the ability to split to split vertically or, or whatever the feature it was and and people just kind of didn't acknowledge it for years i remember seeing people making that complaint oh screen doesn't do this and and i don't know why i, I yeah i don't know why the feature set just isn't getting the attention that it should. I mean, I'm part of the problem, I guess, because I, I sat here and did an episode about Tmux and and said that it was vital to use Tmux over screen. Um, and now and now I'm kind of now I'm back to not caring so much, to be honest. So yeah, it, it is kind of um, it's a weird one, but I mean, this is this is just the way it goes, right? I mean, you find applications and it has one feature set. You wander away from it for a year or two years, and, and you come back, and it, it has a lot more added to it, but we don't reevaluate software, unless it was, unless, unless you evaluated it, found something lacking, and then came back two years specifically to reevaluate. But otherwise, I, I think a lot of us, we, we tend to, the, the first impression syndrome, you know, that, that first impression counts, and we get our first impression, and then we forget to kind of ask questions when revisiting it. So thank you, Matthias, for telling me about the screen-x trick. I, I'm kind of surprised I didn't know about that, and uh, I feel like I may have actually known about that. I, I might have actually tried that a long time ago, and then promptly forgot it, because it, it does, it resonates a little bit, but who knows. Anyway, point is, screen-x, it, that, well, that will give you a shared screen instance. Very, very cool. Thank you very much. Okay, next up is John. John says, in episode 390, you complained about the language verb tense used in Mandocs. The tone of the document sounds very much like something I encountered back 
when I was at uni. At uni, I did a bunch of process engineering papers. When writing up the lab reports for these papers, we had to use what was called passive voice. We weren't allowed to use I, we, you, or active verbs. They had to all be past or future tense. It was all very annoying. It was very annoying, suddenly, having to write like this, and I had three years of it being drilled into me. Then I had ten years after that trying to unlearn writing in passive voice, as it was ingrained in me by that time, by the time I left uni. And outside lab reports, uh, it's not very, uh, it's not a very engaging way of communicating. Even Microsoft Word's grammar checker didn't like passive voice, and I had Clippy constantly complain to me about the use of passive voice when I was writing up my lab reports. Yes, I thought Clippy was amazing back in those days. Anyway, uh, I, I, um, as someone who was forced to learn to write like that, I agree it shouldn't be used in instructional documentation. It is less engaging to the reader. However, once writing in passive voice has been learned, it can be very hard to unlearn. It took years for me to stop defaulting to that style. Thanks, John. That adds a lot of insight and a lot of context to, yeah, to something that I've never, ever, ever considered. And that is, I mean, I guess deep down I knew that there were different style guides for different... Well, I guess I never really thought about why there were different style guides. I know there's like the AP style guide, and I know there's the IBM style guide, and there's all these other style guides. And and, and broadly speaking, I mean, I don't know how much style guides really dictate whether you're using passive voice or active voice and so on, but that same concept, I guess, is is it applies here and that is this the knowledge and the fact that in different industries there are different expectations of how of of how things are written specifically i was going to say how how things are communicated but i i guess really what we're talking about is the written word and how that comes across and it never occurred to me not in a million years never occurred to me that some some industry would would dictate and mandate that that you must use well i should say that the passive voice must be used by the author. That, that, by the way, is, that was the passive voice. So it never occurred to me that you, that some industries would mandate that you must use the passive voice. That just never really, I never thought of that. And through my very limited scope of what I'm writing for when I write, I think, well, this is ob- this is obviously the more engaging and the the better way of of communicating. But I can totally see in like a lab report where I would imagine, and, and this is me speculating now because now I'm way out of my depth. I mean, I just I just now found out that this was even a thing. But I could imagine in a lab report if you're I don't know combining two chemicals, maybe. Maybe the maybe the 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 person is the least important element <laughs> element in in that report, and in fact, you you probably even because you're you're doing everything under a controlled environment, so you actually you want there to be no active narrator or or active um, entity in in this scenario. You want to suggest that when chemical A is combined with chemical B, then chemical C is produced or chemical C blows up or whatever. You don't really want to say if you, to the reader, combine chemical A and chemical B, then you produce a chemical C, which then will explode in your face. There's, it, it isn't about you. It doesn't take a you to combine these things. If these two things combine, then some reaction occurs. 
and there doesn't need to be a third person in that party that there there can these chemicals could get combined i don't know in a primordial soup as they say or or in the in the i don't know the belly of a volcano or something like these these reactions could happen without stimuli well i i don't know is that true wouldn't they i i don't know point being i can see why you wouldn't want to suggest that it takes an active force to, to for for certain things to be true whereas on a computer i would i would kind of i i think i would probably argue very flippantly that it it always takes input to produce output like that's just that's how it ha- and and input doesn't come from from nowhere it it has to come from something or somewhere and so to me, when telling people how to do something on a computer, it only makes sense to place them, the reader, you, the reader, as the active force in that scenario. You are going to produce this input, and then your computer is going to produce this output, and those two things are directly related. So fascinating, fascinating to think about the concept here that 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 in some in some instances these are you know the, there, there's a different expectation and a different a different requirement and i just realized i should probably take notes from uh, about the people to whom i am responding in this episode so that they know to look for for responses although i guess i'll probably also email them and tell them that i've responded to them in the episode so that they know i'm just not ignoring them okay anyway next up is francis francis grizzly smith that's the best username. I love this. Uh, I, I've gotten an email from Grizzly before. I, I know I have. I can't can't cite what it was about, but I know that Grizzly has definitely emailed me before. Look into YCM, you complete me, if you want to make Vim into an IDE. And I guess, to be clear, I don't want to make Vim an IDE, but the, the point is well taken. You Complete Me is apparently, it's a code completion engine for Vim. They support Vim as of uh, version 8, I believe, that's what I can tell, or NeoVim.4.4. That's That wasn't a stutter, that was 0.4.4. Oh, it's actually Vim version 8.1.2269 specifically. I don't know how often Vim gets updates, so I don't know if that actually matters that much, but just keep an eye on their requirements, I guess. Uh, it, it looks a lot like the code completion library that I use for Emacs, uh, which I don't even, I don't remember the name of off the top of my head, but it, it's it's exactly what you would expect, I guess. You start typing, it kind of shows, shows you suggestions, and then you press some keyboard combination to choose the one that you want to autocomplete. Very, very handy. It's one of those things that once you start using such a thing, it's very difficult to 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 live without it. It is really really nice a, a nice feature. I I, I kind of feel like I, I I don't know of many times when I don't want completion nowadays. I mean because you figure even if it's suggesting something wild and crazy and silly that that you'd never that that completely would not be the thing that you would want to. to complete in that context, I mean, who cares? It had a 50-50 chance. It was wrong, so you just keep typing. And then the other 50% of the time, maybe it's correct. And so you select that completion, and and now you don't have to type as much. And I'm all about not typing as much, even though I do bizarrely love to type. But even so, for some reason, it's always better when you don't have to type as much. So code completion is quite nice. And thanks for the... for the reference there, Grizzly, that is, that's gonna help someone. It's, it's not helping me because, like I say, I'm not really, I'm not gonna switch to Vim, which I don't 
I don't believe that Grizzly necessarily was trying to imply that I was going to, but I, I might as well be clear here that um, I'm I'm not I'm not going to switch to Vim, and not for any great religious reason. Reason it's just I'm happy with the editor that I have, so I won't be switching to Vim or turning it into an IDE. But it's still great to know about all the different plugins of Vim or any other IDE or um, text editor. Frankly, it's it's always I think it's always interesting to see what other text editors are doing, what they're up to. Hey, I know, let's take a coffee break, because my cup is feeling a little bit light right now. Needs to needs to get a refill. So let's go do that, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about Slackware Chirrut, and we'll get an update, a very exciting update, personal update, on the CentOS situation. <laughs> to the show. I have my coffee. Hopefully you have your favorite beverage of choice. Could be a hot beverage. It could be coffee. Doesn't have to be. It could be anything. Anything that you enjoy. Deep Geek emailed me the other day and said, I've been fooling around lately with Debootstrap and I've been wondering if there was a Slackware version of it. Debootstrap, that's D-E-B-O-O-T, S-T-R-A-P, started its life as a cog in the Debian installation process. It puts a Debian system into a directory, purely a Unix philosophy thing. Make a tool, make it an expert in doing one thing perfectly, so perfectly, in fact, that it can be used to create perfect Chirrut environments. The Red Hat world has a version 2 called Yum Bootstrap, which installs both Fedora and CentOS systems. So I thought it would be nice to have a Slackware version, if there is one to be had, so I could follow along your with your podcasts in a Slackware Chirrut environment. Does the world of Slackware have such a thing? Turns out it more or less does. It's not, it isn't exactly a tool for this. It is It is simply a method by which to make a minimal Slackware install in a, in a Chirrut environment. So I don't really even know if that counts, but I can go through the steps at least. Uh, and I say I don't know if it counts because this isn't this isn't a single command, but I mean it, it it's a series of commands, and you could string it together as a command. And actually, as I'm saying this, I am discovering that someone's already strung them together as a command, so it's even easier. If you go to tty1, tty1.uk/scripts/slackware/mkchirut. You find a I don't know, let's say 20 line if that 20 line shell script for making a chirut and then placing Slackware into that chirut. Now this admittedly is a full chirut or a full Slackware environment in in Chirrut. So a full Slackware install, took me three times to say that correctly, into this Chirrut. So that's a pretty big install. That's like eight gigabytes or something probably. Now, maybe you would want that, and DeepGeek does specifically cite that he wants to follow along with this podcast, which is going through every single package in Slackware. So I guess eventually he would want the full eight 
gigabytes. But let's for a moment just say that that's not the intent or that we want a little bit of flexibility, in which case I think that the essential um, packages to install would be A, AP, D for developer, L for library, N for networking. That's probably it. Maybe, maybe, maybe the TCL group, maybe. I feel like that might be important, but that's probably about it. So A, AP, D, uh, D for developer, L for library, N for network, and then yeah, I guess maybe throw in the T or the TCL or something like that for for good measure. But that's that's basically that that's that's really all that you would need. Um, that that excludes any X kind of app, you know, any X environment, any X applications. It excludes XFCE. It excludes KDE and a bunch of other big big packages like that. And of course, you could manually remove packages that maybe you decided you didn't need. And this um, this the shell script here that I've I found MK Charoot, it honestly makes this really just amazingly e- easy. It's it's easier than I even realized, actually. Um, I feel like my process would have been a little bit more convoluted, so it is a simple matter of defining the software series that you want to install. So set up a variable called series equals, and then in quotes, a space ap space d space l space n, close quote, and then make a cheroot directory, so maybe uh, in make dir my cheroot, and you would want to do that in some sensible location. You'll need the Slackware packages that you want to install. So you would point you you would you'll you'll need the the directory with all of those, or the the media with all of those packages, all of the software series packages on it. And then you could um, change directory into your Slackware um, sur- uh, sources, and just do a for i in dollar sign series semicolon do install pkg dash dash root dollar sign uh, or path to your cheroot directory so my cheroot wherever you put that and then dollar sign i slash asterisk dot t question mark z so what you're doing there is you're saying for for each thing in the series variable so a a p d l n that sort of thing for each one of those install the packages which are always going to start with anything, asterisk, dot, t, and then it's going to be either g, x, or b, usually really g or x, um, so question mark, z, into the my root directory, and then close that clause out with a done, and that's pretty much it. Uh, to get the Chroot up and running, you'll also need a proc directory, a dev directory, a sys directory, and a temp directory, so make dir dash p my root slash proc make dir dash p my root slash dev make dir dash p my root slash sys sys make dir dash p my root slash tmp so now you've got your infrastructure for your root environment and then of course it's just um it's a matter of entering the root environment which you could do uh with a root command and you do that by doing a root my root slash bin slash bash and now you're in your chroot folder and of course the slash proc and the slash temp and all that other stuff that's managed by chroot so you don't need to do anything special to designate those as the as the uh, as the directories for which they are named to get out of a chroot you can type exit or you can hit control d or whatever your favorite way of getting out of sort of an environment is i would probably just do exit but you can do control d if that's what you do and and there you go. I mean, that's really, it's pretty simple. I mean, it's, it's like I said, it was, it's simple to speak out loud, and it is 
it is even easier if someone has written it down into a shell script, and apparently someone has. So by all means, go look at Make Chirut or MK Chirut. Okay, next up is an email from Bex, and I don't actually. I think it's Brian. This is is his name. Yeah. So Bex, anyway. And Bex, I vaguely know of. He probably doesn't know that I know him, but but I I know of him because I, I'm pretty sure I've seen his name come up on Fedora Fedora um, bug reports and things like that. So I I know tangentially of this person. I know that he exists. He emailed me, and I don't know if it's because he heard the show or if he is responding to an email of inquiry that I sent when the CentOS thing happened, or both. But either way, he says, Thank you for connecting with us regarding recent changes in the CentOS project. This actually doesn't sound like you heard the show. This sounds like a, a pre-typed email. We are actively investing time to understand the needs of the community and provide workable solutions for as many cases as possible. We have a few new programs that are being rolled out this week. So here we go. No cost rel for small production workloads. While CentOS Linux provided a no-cost Linux distribution, no-cost RHEL also exists today through the Red Hat Developer Program. The program's terms formerly limited its use to single machine developers. We recognized this was a challenge, uh, a challenging limitation. We're addressing this by expanding the terms of the Red Hat Developer Program so that the individual developer subscription for RHEL can be used in production for up to 16 systems. I'm going to skip over some details uh, about running it on various cloud platforms. And it says, no-cost rel for customer development teams. We recognized a challenge of the developer program was limiting it to an indiv individual developer. We're now expanding the Red Hat developer program to make it easier for customers' development teams to join the program and take advantage of its benefits. These development teams can now be added to this program at no additional cost via the customer's existing subscription, helping to make RHEL more accessible as a development platform for the entire organization. Through this program, RHEL can also be deployed via Red Hat Cloud Access and is accessible on major public clouds, including AWS Google Cloud Platform Microsoft Azure, at no additional costs except for the usual hosting fees charged by your cloud provider of choice. You can read about these programs on the blog posted January 20. We know that these programs don't address every CentOS Linux use case, so we aren't done delivering more ways to get RHEL easily. As a reminder, CentOS Linux 8 builds will end December 31, 2021, and CentOS Linux 7 will continue as planned until June 30, 2024. That's the email that I got pretty much and I mean there's some other bits and pieces that I've left out so don't 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 think that this was the complete had had you emailed the CentOS project for more information you will you'll have received this same email and you'll know everything that I know. But there's also this this blog post here redhat.com/en for english/blog/new with dashes in between new year, new Red Hat Enterprise Linux programs, easier ways, access, RHEL. That's a very long URL. I'll put it in my in my show notes, probably. I imagine I will. There are a couple of couple of things here that they say that are different than the email. Not a whole lot, but a couple of things. One is this sentence here. It says, We made this change because we felt that the Linux development models of the past 10 plus years needed to keep pace with the evolving 
IT world. I think that that is a really great point that they're making. I think that Red Hat, I think a lot of people, myself included, we, we think of Red Hat, we, we think of RHEL because it is uh, stable, it is long-term support, it is a, a rock-solid foundation upon which you can base whatever you want to base in terms of like uh, you know server activity and stuff. But really Red Hat is very frequently thinking about sort of the future. In fact, they say here, making hard choices for the future isn't new to Red Hat. And that is so true if you think about how Red Hat actually operates. Like, yes, RHEL is rock solid and slow moving and, and long-term support, that sort of thing. But really, they've made some of the most progressive calls for Linux, as, you know, more progressive than almost anyone. They, they, they kind of have fostered, for instance, System D, which is hugely divisive. Pulse Audio, hugely divisive, at least in my world. They they've done these things. They've they've they, uh, the Fedora project has Silverblue, crazy idea of having this immutable core OS and then putting containers on top of that so that you can customize it. I mean that that sort of thinking is way way out there and really looking to the future and some of them may fall flat i don't know but but then again maybe not i mean fedora silverblue it's not the default download of fedora today but i don't know what three years from now looks like this could be a norm this could be the thing that we're doing in three years i mean it's kind of what the chromebooks are doing if you really think about it so that they're they're very forward thinking actually and they and they make those moves towards that, and they make it relatively early. And so while that may be jarring to people who whose everyday foot on the ground, sort of like, this is what they do all day, is just maintain a server, it seems crazy at the time, but give it some time and suddenly it starts to make sense. So I, I feel like this is actually, I, I'm, in my mind, I think this is resolved. CentOS is, the, the torch has been passed to something like Rocky Linux. That's the community saving grace of open source. That's what it's all about. Red Hat has its own agenda and is doing things its way, which is fine. Linux needs Red Hat, I believe, as much as Red Hat needs Linux. So I think that's a great thing for them to be doing, whatever they need to do to continue sort of their push for Linux in all of the different big corporations i think that's a that's a net bonus for everyone that that works well for the businesses and it works well for the community and the community doesn't really have to worry about what the businesses are doing and ideally the businesses don't really have to worry about what the community is doing uh, because we're frankly better off without them but they are here and so they may as well be running linux to my mind to my thinking uh, and then, of course, there's, you know, Fedora, which is a community prog uh, project, and it's, it's always doing interesting things. And then CentOS is going to be somewhere in between. And this is, once again, how RHEL, how RHEL sees it right now, or rather, Red Hat sees this. Fedora Linux is the place for major new operating system innovations, thoughts, and ideas. Essentially, this is where the next major version of Red Hat Enterprise Linux, RHEL, is born. And that is true. Uh, and then they say CentOS Stream is the continuously delivered platform that becomes the next minor version of RHEL. And then RHEL is the intelligent operating system for production workloads used in nearly every industry in the world, from cloud-scale deployments in mission-critical data centers and localized server rooms to public clouds and out to far-flung edges of enterprise networks. So that's how they see their landscape. And I, I don't think that that's the craziest way to see 
a development landscape, honestly. You, you you get everything there. You've got Fedora, you've got CentOS Stream, and then you've got RHEL. So the more I read about this, the more interested I am in CentOS Stream. Initially, I just thought, well, that sounds like something that is not going to... I'm never going to need that. But CentOS Stream, in a way, kind of sounds like it might be exactly what I need. Like, that might be something that I'm very interested in. Why it needs its own name, I don't really understand, but I guess it's probably helpful just in terms of knowing whether or not you need a subscription to run it or not. Maybe that's the... Maybe that's the key, I'm not sure. But CentOS Stream sounds pretty appealing to me, kind of that that middle ground between way too many updates every week and nowhere near enough updates every week. CentOS Stream sounds kind of reasonable to me. So keeping an eye on that, I guess. And I think that's about it for this episode. Oh wait, no, actually there is one more thing, which is a contact on Mastodon. Someone was asking about the intro and outro music. This is from Marvin on Mastodon, and Marvin says, Hey Klaatu, it probably already got asked and answered in the past, but what is the intro music you use for GNU World Order? It's so groovy and I need more of it in my life. So thank you very much, Marvin, for saying that. I'm glad that you find it enjoyable. The intro and outro of this show is done by Fat Chance Lester, fatchancelester.bandcamp.com. All of their music is Creative Commons. It's super weird, so be aware of that. The album that the intro and outro of this show come from is called Napalm Lounge. And if you are listening specifically for the intro and outro, then the outro is the first track of that album, of Napalm Lounge, and the intro is the last track of that album. And I say first and last track based on Bandcamp, but actually that album is just one track, but Bandcamp splits it up into, I don't know, eight different tracks or whatever it is. But if you want the full album uh, as just one track, you can download it from the archive directory of this show. So go to gnuworldorder.info slash audio file. That's audio file with a PH as in the uh, an appreciation of audio. Audio file slash archive. There's a directory there called music. I just added it today. And in that directory currently there is one thing. It's fat chance lester underscore I don't know napalm lounge uh, dot or underscore og dot zip. And so that's got the single og file and the liner notes in PDF format. It is about 70 megabytes, and you're free to download that. It is a completely legal file to download. It is, as I say, licensed Creative Commons, so it's it's free to share, free to listen to. It's pretty wacky, but if you like it at the beginning and the end of the show, maybe you'll like it for an hour. Who knows? So there you go. Thanks for asking about that, Marvin. And yeah, I've been asked before. Longtime listeners will know the full story of Fat Chance Lester. It's a crazy one. Just go get all of their albums and try to piece it all together if you'd like. That's it for this episode. Thank you very much for all the feedback. And sorry it took me for uh, so long to get back to you. But like I say, I just... I. I'd recorded so many shows and forgot to sort of stop in order to communicate. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.
Thank you for listening to the GNU World Order Cast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Augcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at Klaatu at member.fsf.org. That's Klaatu at member.fsf, as in Free Software Foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time.